नमस्ते एवरीवन वेलकम टू द चार वर्क पॉडकास्ट दिस इज योर होस्ट कुशल मेहरा इट इज माय एब्सोल्यूट ऑनर टू होस्ट चंद्रचूर घोष टुडे टुडे वी आर गोइंग टू बी टॉकिंग अबाउट चंद्रचूर्स बुक 1947 टू 1957 इंडिया द बर्थ ऑफ अ रिपब्लिक नाउ लेट मी गिव यू गाइस अ ब्रीफ बैकग्राउंड आई हैव बीन रीडिंग चंद्रचूर्स वर्क फॉर अ वाइल and this is the first time we are actually met in 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 di- even digitally matlab uh, chandrachur has been following my work silently i have been following his work silently i have been reading his books he's been watching my podcast and i was so happy that finally this podcast got materialized and i was telling him just now offline that i admired his work uh, especially when it comes to you know his great research on netaji subhash chandra bose and and i want to start today's podcast by acknowledging that if it was not for him and his work and his activism the declassification of the 10000 pages in 10 2010 would not have happened and by stating that and putting it on record i want to welcome chandrachur chandrachur thank you very much for coming um the uh, and thank you for whatever you've done thank you kushal namaste to all your viewers and thank you very much for having me on your show it uh, does mean a lot it's my pleasure and my honor too to be i i do follow your work i have been following for quite some time i follow you on twitter so get to know what you are up to <laughs> and uh, i I'm, i'm glad to be on your show and uh, looking forward to your uh, questions i mean the way you prepare and uh, i i i'm i'm nervous so i just hope that you are not going to grill me too hard are nahi yaar see uh, the reason i do this chandrachur is that you know i once i was having a conversation off the record with hindol and and i told hindol the same thing i was like yaar you guys are serious authors whether it's you hindol vikram many others and hindol told me it takes us a good 5 minutes to understand whether somebody has read the book or not because humko pata chal jata hai as an author ki ye banda superficial question puch raha hai ki uh, इसने पढ़ी है बुक या नहीं पढ़ी है बुक दैट काइंड ऑफ अ सिनेरियो बट नाउ आई वांट टू स्टार्ट द नाउ यू हैव रिटन बिफोर दिस द बुक्स दैट यू रोड वर द अनटोल्ड स्टोरी राइट द ऑफ एन इनकन्वीनियंट नेशनलिस्ट दिस वाज 2022 या ऑब्वियसली दिस वाज ऑन सुभाष चंद्र बोस एंड now why did you decide to write this particular book now i'll i and and i'll <coughs> caveat it with this question why 1947 to 1957 why why this 10 year period first of all uh well uh, let me come to your first uh, question why why did i decide to write this book actually my first book was uh, conundrum subhas bose's uh, life after death so it was about the netaji's disappearance mystery which uh, i wrote with my friend anujda so in the declassification movement anuj and i have been working together from 2000 uh it's it's a long time now 18 years or more than 18 years now and uh, we have always tried to understand it has intrigued me why there was so much resistance on behalf of the government of india to let uh, anything come out that is related to netaji what i mean such a hero such a man who got us our freedom and he should be celebrated widely talked about talked more about instead everything related to him was uh, pushed under the carpet and it intrigued me so after uh, i wrote uh, conundrum with anuj uh, then of course the natural 
thing was to write a proper biography because there are plenty of biographies on Netaji, but none of them actually go into the political dynamics, the intricacies of political dynamics with his colleagues, with the revolutionary uh, organizations uh, that really asks the hard questions about his political choices, his alliances with the Axis power and the way he chose to go against uh, the Gandhian method. How, uh, uh, how, how much against Gandhi was he? So all these difficult questions needed to be answered properly. So once that was done with, I went back to uh, this thing about understanding what was the political reason for suppressing Subhash Bose? That's the genesis. And then I realized that there are very, very few books which have actually taken a critical look from the period uh, when the interim government was formed in 1946. And during that period, a lot of important decisions were taken. Uh, I won't say a lot of uh, laws. Of course, some uh, game-changing laws were made. The constitution was framed and the uh, the lay of the land was prepared during this first decade. The first decade ends with 57 because that's when the second uh, general elections took place. So that's where I decided to stop to uh, kind of with a review, with a, with a performance assessment of the first properly elected government. Now, now if, if, you, if you look at the process during this, uh, the first five or six years of this 10-year period from, say, 1946-47 till 1951, a lot of important things, very important things were uh, decided and put in place by a government which was not representative, which was not properly elected. Uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the electorate at that time which elected the members of the state provincial legislative assemblies was just about 1.5% or 1.1% if I remember correctly. And the central legislative assembly was elected on the uh, elected by just 0.5% of the population. That's too narrow a uh, uh, when, when the Congress was talking about adult franchise, a uh, full 100% might not have been possible in that short time, but it might well have been 50%, 60%. They could have tried. They decided not to. So a, a lot of things were happening. And this very restricted, uh, with some technocrats, with some uh, uh, legal experts and a very narrow cross-section of the political class, they went framing policies which continued. And that is one side. And the other side is Nehru. This is a period when Nehru cemented his place as India's leader. And his constant... Uh, urge to emerge as a global leader who would take the world on the path of peace, peace and justice and love. So the world had to be conquered by peace and justice and love. The Gandhian dogma that was always in the head of the politicians and uh, the bureaucrats also. So this is a very, very interesting, fascinating mix of ideas, personalities, clashes between them. Gandhi, this is the period when Gandhi disappears. Gandhi vanishes from the scene. He's assassinated. He is no more there. As soon as Gandhi leaves the scene, that Gandhian high command, that fabled Gandhian high command starts falling apart. They move away from each other. Kripalani goes, Rajakopalachari goes, Patel and Nehru are almost on the verge of resigning. Uh, and so it's a, it's a very, very tense situation. 
and so many things happening at the same place at the same time the states are being reorganized they are first unified reorganized elections happening so the whole election machinery coming in place uh, as soon as the constitution is ready immediately the first amendment is rushed through so uh, this is a very very interesting phase which needed a fuller look and not uh, any any less important was the uh, reshaping of the bureaucracy and the armed forces because these are colonial legacies so we need to look at how this was turned into a whether at all successfully or not into a national asset or it still continued carried the colonial legacy and the mindset so all these factors i thought let's me let me just concentrate on the first 10 years later years can be dealt with later now you know what fascinated me was one quote in the book you have shared uh, i'm going to read the quote directly you say ambedkar while introducing the draft constitution explained why the term quote union of states was preferred over federation of states the direct quote is very important from even from a concurrent you know current uh, perspective the, and and i want to read this the drafting committee wanted to make it clear that though india was to be a federation the federation was not the result of an agreement by the states to join in a federation and that the federation not being the result of an agreement no state has the right to secede from it the federation is a union because it is indestructible though the country and the people may be divided into different states for convenience of administration the country is one integral whole its people a single people living under the single imperial derived from a single source why i found this very interesting is that even at the outset there were some things that were etched firmly in our mind because i think this was in a weird way the indian drafters of the constitutions way of saying never again we had one partition never again what do you make yeah. of it uh see i mean there were there were various ideas uh but the ideas the different ideas the contrarian views that came up in the constituent assembly it was very easy to shoot them down uh, because it was heavily dominated by the congress party and the congress had its team which worked on the constitution on the draft on the ideas on the various stages of draft the the one that you read is from the final draft by the drafting committee which was chaired by ambedkar now before that various uh, drafts were prepared some of those subcommittees committees were chaired by nehru himself some by sardar patel some by other uh, legal luminaries and they decided and came and debated there were long speeches but contrarian views were rarely accepted they were always shot down there was no serious debate uh, and and when these kind of things like one contrarian view uh, one gandhian view that came up Uh, there was a forceful argument in favor of india becoming a village republic and ambedkar was savage in his criticism in his shooting down that idea and 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 i mean this whole thing that india is united unified if there are different provinces there are cultures there are uh, different uh, methods and practices in different parts of the country that does not make the country as into a, a, a conglomeration of splinters they it's it's a unified whole and and that's how it should be treated so a lot of autonomy goes to different regions but they are at the end of the day a whole so this is something i i seriously believe somebody should 
should read out Ambedkar to Rahul Gandhi when he talks in the press conferences abroad. And he keeps repeating India is a union of states, union of states, as if it's a club where people have come and joined and honor, signed agreement. So uh, this, this is, that's this inherent underlying spirit. And you are right, is that the bitterness uh, regarding the partition of the country was so much, so deep that it would come out, it would find expression every now and then. Even someone as cool-headed or level-headed like Sadar Patel could not contain himself when he uh, took uh, a serious jive at the Muslim League members of the Constituent Assembly when they joined much later and, and, and uh, uh, shot down the idea of separate electorates or separate representations or reservations when he was dealing with all those things. So the idea was very, very clear that India is one country. It's, it's, a, it's a union. It's a union of states because states have been there, provinces have been there. India has comprised, India is comprised of different cultures. That's what the provinces represent. Uh, and I mean, till the linguistic uh, reorganization had still not happened, but the idea was very much there from 1930, from 1921. And that's, that's one principle which the Congress had adopted at the very beginning when Gandhi had taken over Congress, when he rewrote the constitution of uh, the Indian National Congress in 1921. So that linguistic reorganization idea was there. I mean, uh, idea was, of course, there. People accepted it. But the strange part is uh, there are two things. One is uh, the Indian National Congress went against practically all of its important ideas and objectives. They did a 180 degrees turn on practically everything. On complete independence, they accepted dominion status severing links with Great Britain, they joined the uh, Commonwealth, British Commonwealth, and uh, they were against partition, they accepted partition, and uh, I mean, so on and so forth. There were, there, there were many ideas which they stood for, and they moved back from it because of the convenience or because of the lure of power, if I may say so, uh, I mean, bluntly, I have to be blunt, so I don't see any problem with that. But, but that, that's what made them, uh, you know, compromise on their principles. That's one point. The second point is, this is also the period, Kushal, when the culture of political leadership, political organization, and the culture of the bureaucracy was set down. And there, Pandit Nehru and Sadar Patel played the uh, most important roles. Uh, to some extent, VP Menon. VP Menon was more the uh, worker who did things for them, but the culture was set down by Pandit Nehru and Sadar Patel. That culture continues till today. Maybe it is it, it is it is eroding now after the uh, beginning of the NDA government, uh, Modi government. To a great extent, I see it eroding now, but the underlying current is still very strong. Letters are still drafted in the way letters were drafted in 1947. Well, bureaucrats, top-level bureaucrats, write their letters the way Pandit Nehru used to uh, start writing his notes. So their thinking, their world outlook, global uh, uh, outlook, national outlook, a lot of things became inherent over the from 1947 over the next seven seven decades. This became so much internalized in the political and the bureaucratic class. And consequently, because it was uh, disseminated to the wider public, even the public assimilated it, and they took it as the normal, the natural thing. 
so that culture it it is a humongous task to break down that culture and make people see that there is an alternative there are other possibilities so my idea was also to look at how these cultures were established and start questioning them now for me this book for me obviously you know you have a dedicated chapter that you call nehru supremacy obviously and that that is a very interesting chapter in terms of how uh nehru kind of set the tone but what a lot of people may not know is where you quote gandhi that he had made up his mind in 1929 about nehru now that yeah. yes that that is something again i want to read that you write gandhi had made his choice known uh, unambiguously when he had selected nehru over patel for the congress presidentship in 1921 in january 1942 he de- he had declared quote i have always said that not raja ji not sardar vallabhbhai but jawahar lal will be my successor he predicted when i am gone he will do what i am doing now a few months later gandhi clarified quote he nehru has never accepted my method in its entirety he has frankly criticized it and yet he has faithfully carried out the congress policy largely influenced by me those like sardar vallabhbhai patel who have followed me without question cannot be called heirs and everybody admits that jawarlal has the drive that no one else has in the same measure this really fascinates me like yes. so gandhi saw patel's dedication to him as a weakness kind of it's it's a subservient uh, attitude probably that's the way he took it and uh, towards the final days of his life when uh, this whole fight was going on over uh, paying pakistan rupees 55 crores and patel had opposed it patel had stopped the payment and at the same time the fight between clash between nehru and patel was at its peak Gandhi had made a public statement that Sardar has stopped being my yes man. He used to be one, but he is no more. And after that, I have quoted Sardar's letter in this book, which is taken from Manipal Patel's uh, book, and uh, it's a tragic letter. It's a letter of a heartbroken man. It's it's. I felt sad. I'm not a fan of Sardar Patel so much, but uh, it, it, it. I mean, a man who had given his life. to the ideals of one person uh, being run down repeatedly by that man and uh, uh, forced to occupy the second position always to play the second uh, rung always and then being uh, made responsible for things which were going wrong it it would have been very very uh, heartbreaking for him and he was pretty advanced in age at that time so towards the it was towards the end of his life also he survived just about two and a half more years and uh, the, uh, nehru with towards nehru uh, gandhi had never any doubt uh, that he would uh, be the successor he was the heir now th- this uh, question why nehru had not boast i had dealt with in uh, subhas bose's biography where uh, both nehru and subhas were intellectually of the same predisposition and they had similar ideas they were both western educated modern uh, had a very modern reformist outlook had uh, similar economic uh, reforms in mind but subhas bose was a more pragmatic and had probably a broader world view thought 
more strictly in terms of uh, India's interest, whereas Nehru was more abstract whether it benefited anybody or not, whether the principles benefited anybody or not. Subhas Bose was focused on India's interest. India must think of her interest first. That was the slogan that he gave in 1939, which I keep repeating, that came back as uh, Narendra Modi's India first slogan in 2014. And uh, that is still that uh, mantra which is being followed. So, but behaviorally speaking, Nehru deferred from Gandhi a whole lot of times, whole lot of times. But every time Gandhi, all Gandhi had to do was to scold that, what are you doing? This is not the right thing. And Nehru has admitted it himself uh, in his autobiography and later in life to a, to a uh, foreign lady journalist to whom he opened up and, and said that uh, uh, I, I was not, I was unfair to Subhash. And, and to me, Gandhi was everything. I disagreed with him on so many points, but uh, I could never think of leaving him and follow my own path. So I had to stick to him. But that is the, uh, my, in my understanding, that is a very, very public explanation, although true, a very public explanation. There was a bigger explanation because all the leaders in the Gandhian high command understood perfectly well that they survived as leaders when they were held together by Gandhi. And this becomes amply clear when Gandhi goes out of the scene. It's only Nehru that survives. The remaining, all of them are nowhere in the scene. They are not capturing the imagination of the masses. They are not mass leaders. They are not making any politically impactful move. They are not coming forth with any game-changing policy or any movement as such, and I must say it, it's 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 with a heavy heart that the biggest disappointments that come out of this period are Jayaprakash Narayan and Ramon Lohia, who could never make up their mind where to go and what to do. Elaborate on that because I think people should know about what JP and Lohiaji were were doing, like. Can you explain that with a few tangible examples? Yeah, because sure. that was I going mean, to be my next question anyway. <laughs> See, the th thing is that uh, JP had uh, a great amount of admiration for Gandhi. Uh, they had a long association. And he had genuine love and admiration for Nehru. Now, uh, towards 1946, after the war ended and the leaders were out of prison and things were moving forth towards forming the interim government, uh, JP bargained hard for getting a lot of socialist leaders in the cabinet, which was refused by the Congress Working Committee. So he stayed out of the uh, whole government formation thing. But at the political uh, organizational level, in 1948, the socialist group in the Congress, they came out and formed a separate party, the Socialist Party. Because they felt that they could not go with Congress anymore because Congress had a very strong presence of the right wing uh, uh, led by Sardar Patel and uh, Sardar Patel and JP had a very strong hate-hate relationship. They could not stand each other uh, and, and, and uh, JP felt that uh, Patel was taking over and ha was having a greater say in the organizational and policy matters so chose to stay away. So, but even his love for Gandhi and uh, for Nehru, his admiration for Gandhi and Nehru 
stop him from taking the movement, a mass movement forward, even when he disagreed strongly uh, over government policies. So there were a lot of political experimentation going on. So once uh, Kripalani leaves uh, and uh, Prafulla goes, another staunch Gandhian from Bengal leaves, they come and from the uh, Krishak Mazdur Praja Party, then they merge, uh, Socialist Party go and merge with them, they form the Praja Socialist Party and uh, so a lot of experimentation is going on. But that is not a unified, coherent party. It's it's, it's kind of a khichdi. So it keeps forming and breaking, forming and breaking. So uh, in, in South India, uh, uh, the party breaks away to form government. So uh, it's, it's a very, I mean, uh, interesting tamasha, but tamasha. The, in this whole situation, in this whole scenario, JP was one person who had the uh, at uh, fan following or the mass following who could emerge as an alternative, as a challenger to Nehru. He failed to fulfill that role. Ramon Aloya was very scathing in his criticism of Nehru and his foreign policy and other policies in the country. But again, all these remained as verbal criticisms. They were never followed up in the form of a mass movement. They could never agree on what would be the form of the movement, what they should do, and how they could influence policymaking within the uh, government. As a result, what happened is this gap was left. It, this gap of a challenger to Nehru, if anybody could fulfill at this point of time, it was Samaprasad Mukherjee. After he uh, quit the government, after he quit the cabinet on the issue of uh, uh, migrants, refugees from East Bengal, he became a, an extremely staunch critic of Nehru and he constantly badgered Nehru in parliament. He to back him up, he did not, he had quit Hindu Mahasabha uh, quite some time ago. So to back him up, he started organizing uh, similar thinking people and all. Uh, and, and I must uh, tell you, this is interesting. BJP likes to call uh, Shama Prasad Mukherjee as the founder of their stream of thought and Jansang. Shama Prasad Mukherjee did not find Jansang. He did not establish Jansang. Jansang was established by others. He was invited and he took the position, the post of the president, first president. So Jansang was not founded by Shama Prasad Mukherjee. That's uh, absolutely wrong. Uh, Samaprasad's uh, party was uh, uh, had a different name. It, it was called, I think, Praja Party or something, uh, something like that, or uh, Democratic Workers Party or something like that. I'm, I'm forgetting the name at this moment. So the consolidation that was happening was on the right, on the right wing. Samaprasad was a very capable leader, and he was consolidating the right wing movement against Nehru. And in 1951, I have quoted that later here in this book, just before the first general elections. Nehru is writing uh, to VK Krishnamendra and to him he says clearly that he, he is not worried about other leaders. So they, they will break away, they will uh, be defeated and all. But he is particularly worried about Samaprasad and Janasan. And that means something. In before, just before the first general elections, he is worried. He is naming particularly Samaprasad as the challenger. And that role probably Samaprasad would have uh, reason even higher, it had pro probably become even stronger uh, had he not died untimely under those mysterious circumstances. So, Jaya Prakash Lohia on the socialist side, the communists had gone completely on a different route. 
on a very very aggressive oppositional route uh, oppositional route and as a result a lot of provinces were banning them they were fighting bengal was bengal became the center of their agitational uh, politics now they lacked a national leader who could lead them into power or capture power or have a uh, solid presence in parliament and the provincial uh, assemblies so they got hold of uh, uh, subhas bose's elder brother sarachandra bose sarachandra bose hated the communists but for the electoral purpose he agreed to uh, give them a lead so a, a lot of uh, mixing was happening at this time which is fascinating and that is very essential to understand the political underpinnings of the current times because i don't think we are talking reading or studying history here these are things which are still part of our intellectual and uh, uh, mental baggage we are still carrying them somewhere behind at the back of our mind and it still uh, defines the role of the different political groups that are still active now you know what is fascinating is and i want to connect this to two instances so in vikram's book you know he has shared some british intelligence cables about the rss and how the british intelligence used to write about the rss and i'll connect it to your book i am just laying the ground from that book to this book that the british intelligence folks say yaar we need to keep an eye on this damn organization ye saale chup chup ke kaam karte hain and you know they are putting their people in <laughs> every walk of society and uh, this intelligence cable is from when 1930s 1940s circa today kind of right the british intelligence got the rss right so they understood the rss mind and now i want to quote your book so the presence of rss in the state continued to bother nehru he wrote in a letter on no- 21st november the rss is an injurious and dangerous organization and fascist the strictly technical sense of the word we have known about it for many years and some of our colleagues have been up against it for a long time it is bad enough in maharashtra where it originated it, this is such a weird line it is bad enough in maharashtra where it originated but the combination of rss and punjab has produced something worse i don't know what the rss has done in punjab i mean it's very interesting i have little doubt that we have uh, we have to stand up against this this uh, these they are very well organized but extraordinarily narrow in their outlook and completely lacking in the appreciation of any basic problem these guys were scared of the rss they were always scared of the rss which is fascinating to me yeah and and, and if you notice if you notice this letter was written in the thick of the uh, invasion of uh, jammu and kashmir there was worried that rss is entering jammu kashmir and they are going to play a role in the valley and in the hills so that is what he was completely i mean so completely worried about and he wanted to stop it by any means and that's that's what worried him at the time is very very interesting it's fascinating why he would rather be uh, rather than being worried about uh, the pakistani army and the infiltrators and the national conference he is spending so much time on worrying about rss and and you know what the irony is now in my i started my socio political work in 2009 10 i've never hidden who i vote for what i do in my life like 
now it's been seven years of podcasting. I've had a privilege of getting access to many people, you know, different political outfits. I meet Congresses, I meet AAP people, I meet RSS. But these are the simplest people. Like you meet an RSS person, they're so simple. And to give this level of Machiavellian thought to the RSS has never kind I have never understood why these people actually are so scared of the RSS. Like the, all the, you go to any RSS meeting, you know, you might end up concluding here, these are a bunch of uncles who just say, love your country. That's all it is basically. But the way they do it is so amazing that apparently it clicks. And instead of learning from them, the half of the time is spent on hating them. And now, you know, when you read books like yours or books like Vikram's, you know, you understand why they hate the RSS because they looked at them not as a fascist force. That is just a bahana. They were yeah. worried that they were the serious political answer to them. They, they, they look at, and, and uh, I mean, this this uh, whole uh, idea that this myth, this uh, uh fallacy, I won't call it fallacy, it's a myth which has been very carefully created and nurtured. Uh, the two myths on which we are, uh, our, our national narrative has been standing for so long. The one is that uh, we won our independence because of Gandhiji's nonviolent methods. And the second is India remained democratic because of Pandit Nehru. So Gandhi got us freedom, India made, uh, Nehru made uh, India democratic. These are the two narratives. I don't know how much of public money has gone into uh, ballooning up these two myths. Now, any any class 12 kid, I would say, if he reads carefully Nehru's letters and his works, one thing that would come out is that he was an intellectual. He loved dabbling in ideas. He loved speaking. He And he loved writing pages after pages of letters. But as... And he loved leader, himself... <laughs> yes, I mean that that is there. I mean the number of references to his own popularity when he writes to Vijayalakshmi Pandit or Krishna Menon, it's amazing. He says that the Congress knows that they are nothing without me. People, of course, love me. People come to listen to me. Uh, so all all that is there. I mean, but the one thing that strikes that struck me is uh, as a leader in the political organization and as a leader in uh, government, he was. Uh, quite intolerant of strong opposition. He might be uh, accommodating to a certain extent, but once the challenge became serious, he would go to uh, a great length to snub it. I mean, and, and there are multiple instances of uh, having done that, Nehru having done that. And, and the, perhaps the biggest uh, in the organizational uh, area was uh, compelling Purushottam Das tendon to resign and practically grab the presidentship of Congress. So that aspect of his character, I think, is, is has been covered up pretty much by the Nehru files, who dominate still the academic side of our uh, professional history writing. I, I'm glad that I'm not a professional historian and uh, I, I have no claim to academic excellence in history or anything. I'm just, I just ask questions, I try to find answers. So that's my I, I keep digging. That's my expertise. 
No, but let let's talk about this even more on the subject of who gave us independence. Look, I am someone I'm not very anti Gandhi. Like for the record, I I understand Gandhi had his flaws. Like you know, when I sit with my friends in the West at times, because now I live a very weird sort of a life. Like I'm four and a half, five months I'm in North America. Then the rest of the time, six, seven months, I'm in India. So I, I'm at all aadha idhar, aadha udhar kind of a life jira. So when I talk to people in the West, like I'm like, did you know Gandhi was an anti-vaxer? They're like, wait, what? I was like, yeah, he was kind of. He had some cuckoo beliefs, like his opposition to railways because, I mean, he had some absurd ideas. But I still understand. Listen, it was a marketplace of ideas. It was a battle of ideas, and Gandhi won. Fair and square, and you can't say Gandhi ne mara kisi ko ya bandook ke nok me kia. Wo to Gandhi ne kabi nahi kia. Yeah, he was stubborn. Uh, he he would, you know, self-inflicted pain on himself. He had the worst idea. You know, he would start stop eating, and then he'll like, oh, fir se shuru kar diya. Oh, khana nahi khayega abhi. Oh, fir se fasting shuru kar di. He had that weird sort of a idea of yeah. doing it. But on the independence, it's like. how yaar let us spend some time on this i know it may not be the mood point of the book but i want to spend some time here why do you think this has happened that only gandhi got us independence why do you i'm not saying gandhi did not play a role in getting us independence he clearly has you cannot deny he did not play a role whether good or bad is a separate point and we could you know debate that till the cows come home but I mean, without the naval mutiny, or without you know Subhash Babu going outside and doing what he did, living outside India, and you know his pressure from outside India, we would never be where we are today, and that consciousness Precisely. in us. So, but why do you think this See, has happened? So this has happened. Uh, there are two things. One is the fact, and the other is the narrative. Now let me very quickly uh, run you through the facts. Now, who got us freedom? That's uh, a very uh, silly question. Actually, no one person can get us freedom. India is a huge country. The British Raj was a huge empire. No one person can get us freedom. No one can stand up and say just you leave and they will leave. That doesn't happen. So it, that has to be a popular upsurge, and it was not possible. It did not come in one day. that popular awakening awareness generation did not happen in one day it took decades and it happened gradually and in that awakening of people gandhi played a huge role almost a revolutionary role when he came in broke down the elitist uh, nature of the international congress and made it a mass organization went out himself to the different corners of the country met people energized them told them about the method whether you agree with it or not the method of satyagraha the idea to protest that they had the right to protest it created a, a wave and what happened after that is the young generations come in and gandhi has done his work he has reorganized congress he has made it a mass based organization he has given new ideas new tools and people are enchanted with him and of course there is a uh, uh, when we talk about politics people often forget the uh, role of religion also he was uh, his persona was quasi uh, religious spiritual 
and we live in a country when in the 21st century also asaram bapu has millions of followers so bapu to bapu is not comparable but uh, the once you take the spiritual persona it uh, spreads like wildfire so among the less uh, privileged people there was this idea of gandhi baba the gandhi baba can do anything he can drive out the british so in the building of his uh, image his persona all these played a very very important role and gandhi was a great manager he understood what we now talk about in terms of uh, jargon like succession planning second rung leadership and all these things we love to talk about in seminars and workshops gandhi did it in 1920s so the moment he was there up there he had by that time his second rung ready succession planning had started he had chosen nehru towards the end of 1920s but his second rung was intact till 1947 so and he got things done through them he delegation of responsibility so he he was a splendid leader splendid manager and uh, probably india's best marketing guru so whatever he did became an event are log modi ko gali dete hain aaj ke ye karta hai to wo karta hai put up such a show bhai sahab he comes from the land of gandhi gandhi was a greater marketing guru at that age when there was no mass media har ghar ka bachcha bachcha gandhi ka naam janta hai how is it even possible so they think very very highly of him he is an inspiration by the image people don't need to know they didn't know they didn't need to know but the name itself became a symbol but what after i mean now let's look at the last 15 years and try to answer this question this our awareness level had gone up pretty high and events like the non cooperation movement the civil disobedience movement they played a huge role after the civil disobedience movement had been withdrawn completely in 1934 gandhi also kind of took a back seat and started focusing more on constructive uh, uh, work and anti untouchability work all the, all those kind of things but he always held the threads to the organizational maneuvering and political maneuvering and everything now from 1932 when uh, the sub- movement was suppressed the civil disobedience movement was suppressed till 1947 there was no gandhian movement till 1947 15th august now if gandhian movement or gandhian method had to uh, was indeed responsible for our obtaining freedom why did the british have to wait for 15 years because gandhian movement was at its peak in 1932 which was suppressed the next attempt was the quit india movement 10 years later in 1942 now gandhi ji announced quit india and within the next few hours the entire top rung of congress leadership was in prison nobody had an idea as to what the quit india movement program was what were they supposed to do gandhi ji only told them that behave as if you are free i mean that means nothing practically nobody had the gumption to just walk out and say i am free but the arrest of the congress leaders and the uh, the attitude of the british uh, government that made an impact of such an extent that the entire country particularly the western uh, area maharashtra downwards and the eastern side uttar pradesh and bihar that was these two regions were on fire to some extent punjab also 
So what happened in the name of Quit India movement, which Gandhiji started, was absolutely un-Gandhian. Firstly, it was absolutely violent, which cannot be termed, I mean, called Gandhian by any means. Secondly, after the initial repression, it went completely underground. And Gandhi had decried any movement that was underground. He wanted everything in the public, transparent, and had to be done in front of everybody's eyes. So it was as un-Gandhian a movement as it could be. So anybody trying to appropriate Quit India movement in the name of Gandhi is absolutely wrong. It was totally un-Gandhian movement. What happened was more like a revolutionary. And the leaders who were leading this, people like uh, uh, Japrakash Narayan and the other socialist leaders, I have seen the intelligence reports of that time. And they were seriously considering moving uh, more towards the eastern side, anticipating the entry of the Japanese forces uh, being led by Subhasbos. So they were seriously uh, being enthused by this whole thing. And at this time, the Communist Party, uh, the General Secretary of the Communist Party, P.C. Joshi, was going to the office of the IB director and sitting there and giving him reports about what the anti-British movements were thinking, what was going on, spying on people uh, closely connected with Netaji and the socialists. So this was uh, the situation when the war was going on. By 1944, everything had come down to being completely quiet. No movement. Negotiations were there. Parties were going on. Gandhiji was writing letter to Vauvel. And uh, Churchill was completely annoyed that why was Vauvel even entertaining Gandhi? And he asked that why is Gandhi even there discussing politics? The doctor said that he's not supposed to leave for too long. So who was the doctor? I mean, what kind of doctor did you get to check him? Why is he still there? So that was his level of annoyance. And, and, and Vauvel, the, pers the one person to whom we give a very less credit and we while we get we are besotted with Mountbatten, it was actually Vauvel who kick-started the entire process. 1942, Cripps mission had failed. And after that, there was no discussion, nothing, no movement. And by the way, I mean, Congress was against partition. But during the Cripps mission, the Congress Working Committee passed a resolution which accepted the principle of partition. So whatever Congress might say after that, Congress had in principle accepted division of the country in 1942. So this is not known to many people in our country because it's out of the narrative, out of syllabus. Uh, but any anybody who wants to check the Congress resolutions are there. I have reproduced in the book also. So come down to 1945. The leaders, the world, uh, after due to Wobble's efforts, this Shimla conference happens and uh, the war has come to an end. Congress leaders are released. They start talking. The whole focus is on uh, discussions and negotiations. No question of any movement. Suddenly it comes to light. People get to know that there was something called the Indian National Army and it was formed by Suhasbos. And Suhasbos and his army were fighting on the northeastern frontier of the country of India. And the Japan had helped them. And uh, when Japan surrendered, these people have been captured and they are being brought back to the country. And they will be court-martialed. And uh, a lot of people had already been hanged. So things were coming out. That's for the first time in 
towards the end uh, around uh, july august 1945 that people of the country get to hear of ina and subhaskos after 1941 so there is an automatic upsurge throughout the country across the country and the the britishers are shaken and the congress which had still uh, not found its ground under the feet they had no program the organization was completely shattered they found the election issue they completely grabbed it with both hands and all the top leaders were still very much against subhas bose but they knew that we have to tolerate we have to praise him for some time we have to praise the ina and we have to defend them and that will get us through the election because that will get us public support it's clear and this this is uh, supported by intelligence records uh, documents of the period i am not hypothesizing or i am not speculating and and this happens and as soon as the ina trials create that uh, uh, spate of riots and disturbances across the country there is a revolt a mutiny in the royal indian air force soon after that the royal indian navy rises in mutiny and royal indian navy the people who started the revolt they were clearly bc dat's uh, book is there for anyone who wants to read it is he has clearly mentioned that they were inspired by the ina soldiers and subhasus's activity in the southeast bc dat himself had been placed uh, deployed in the southeast asia and he went there saw it with his own eyes he came back talked to his colleagues and these ina ratings the sailors who were called ratings they were very very young people they were 17 18 19 20 year old kids and and they were taken uh, by storm by what they had seen what they had heard and the insult of the british superior officers just gave them a trigger and they went into a complete revolt this revolt was put down by treachery the two people or three people who put it down were not british administrators they were sardar patel pandit nehru and mahatma gandhi they assured them that no action would be taken against them they would be recruited back and all mahatma gandhi said if you are so unhappy with your job why don't you go and find another job as if it was a question of job he even refused to see into the spirit of the movement so that was the level of antipathy towards uh, anything associated with subhas bose and the ina but on the face of it they had to keep that momentum pandit nehru formed the committee of ina defense he put on the gown everybody says that pandit nehru went to red fort trial and defended ina he never spoke a word or everything was done by bhula bhai desai uh, so all this is happening when the country is practically sitting on a volcano that is when uh atli decides to send the cabinet mission to work out the modalities of forming the new constitutional and and transferring power so in this 15 years someone show me a single gandhian movement initiative which could have triggered or which could have motivated the british government to leave so quickly in fact on the contrary i would say it was only the gandhian uh, the reason the british would always put gandhi in the front was they felt that's the only way they can elongate their stay in india not reduce i would uh, i mean people might not agree with me but i think the gandhian method was the only way they could have survived 
that, that there were only handful people they would talk to uh, they would not talk to everybody and they knew who who would support them who would be beneficial and all so that the whole irony and tragedy is 1946 there is a huge potential of mass movement the country is ready for a lead the congress does not provide the leadership but the alternatives mm -hmm. the communists and even jp lohia they also fail and the whole mass movement that way they could things they could have achieved it falls flat and the entire independence is uh, transformed into a, a palace intrigue of transfer of power which happens in shimla viceroy's uh, palace yeah so that i in my opinion that is a big big tragedy yeah it, yeah i mean that i think we could write a series of books just on you know that period of 1930 onwards to 1955 and some of the foundational issues of india that india grapples with as a nation the every nation has an identity right and and the biggest tragedy of india is what is the indian identity like uh, exactly um, and and in, and a lot of this debate actually showcases like I, I, you know you made such a great point that you know gandhi was able to reach the mass level that he did was because he added religion people don't realize yeah. like even pupils today in india they clearly indicate that india is an extremely religious society and if you want to rise in india you have to add that little bit of spirituality as the garnish on top if you want to become yeah, yeah. a political force in india and irony of irony is that the congress party today the reason it is not doing well politically and i say this to so i meet people who are part of the congress and i tell them i was like do you realize you come across as anti india because even today whether you like it or not india is majority hindu now you may assume hinduism is bad but hindus don't think hinduism is bad now how do you you know kind of juxtapose this 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 problem and then you read the historical documents and then you read what nehru had to say then you like it, these things start falling in place and a lot of this uh is is because of the foundational issues in india but yeah you know we we are slowly coming out of it we are finding answers to our identity as a nation uh we are solving these but but before i wrap it up uh, chandrachur first of all if if i was to ask you uh, as the last pa passing question when you were researching for this what was the one moment that left you flabbergasted oh uh, well it's there are too many to uh, select one one i just told you that the passing of a mass movement into a palace intrigue where just one person is sitting with the viceroy and deciding deciding the fate of the country and and without any other representation plans are being made plans are being broken they are being reshaped between that one single representative and the entire country is completely in the dark what is going on there that's one thing which uh, disturbs me there were two there are too many of them but the, i mean otherwise uh, i mean if if i have to talk about it uh, it's it's 
the way jammu kashmir problem was dealt with the exile of maharaja hari singh and the way it was done the way the constitution of jammu kashmir was informally first framed and talked about when when i have used a quote by sheikh abdullah where he is clearly saying that now that pakistan has invaded where is the question of uh, deciding a uh, 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 vote to decide whether we should go to pakistan or india pakistan is invaded india has defended so what changed so quickly that uh, uh, the question of a referendum still lingered on has lingered on and has remained the center of the problem till now and there are too many uh, unknowables in that whole equation and uh, pandit nehru's uh, i mean another characteristic trait of pandit nehru was he took the people to uh, whom he opened up he opened up completely the people whom he put his faith on he trusted them blindly and there were very few of course there were people like vikram krishnamanan to whom he, he would completely open up uh, share his inner thoughts and everything Uh, despite uh, vikram krishnamanan being what he was and of course to his sister vijayalakshmi pandit that one can understand the way he explained his thoughts his emotions and everything what he was going through but all of us i mean i'm not i wouldn't say all of us certain but this extreme vote of confidence and uh, trust that he was showing towards uh, sheikh abdullah at that critical point uh, i find that a bit strange i mean it's it's not a normal political relationship why what had he seen in one particular individual so much that he would be ready to leave the fate of an entire region on the hands of one person yes yeah i i i i think that's a very important point i think it's deeply disturbing and uh, boy are we paying the price for that even today that that damn yes. news around our neck and and you know uh, one of the things like one of the successes of the modi government i would say is how 370 has been finally gotten rid of and we Definitely. are slowly making things normal i mean i have many criticism of the modi government this would be one praise the way they've handled the kashmir issue i think is uh, praiseworthy but chandrachud it, it it has been an absolute uh, pleasure talking to you man i i had so much fun reading this book i learned so much and you know what i love is uh, that you come uh, as a very you you rightfully said you have an outsider's perspective right you are a serious nerd but you are not part of the <laughs> establishment so when you come you you give a refreshing look so and i i had so much fun reading your books and this one was uh, the you. same so so I, all i can say is i look forward to your next one now thank you thank you very much thank you so much kushal it's a pleasure talking to you All right guys we'll wrap today's discussion up but before we wrap it up I want to tell everyone uh, not only this book I would recommend you guys to buy all of Chandrachur's books if you have not read them because I think there is like a series to it so if you read the previous ones you will kind of understand this one uh, because you know bits and bobs are picked from one to the other that that is the way chandrachur has written these books so if you have not i would say even buy the previous ones but if you have then you will see the link to buy the book in the description of the 
podcast video if you're watching this on youtube or if you're listening to this on spotify or uh, audible or uh, whatever uh, itunes or wherever you guys are listening to it you will find a link there to go buy the book uh, it is a fantastic read and as you guys know this podcast is you know i i don't do ad reads uh, why don't i do ad reads is because i'm too heterodox in nature and you know they say you cannot talk about religion in india apparently ni to jail ho jati hai well i will talk about religion jail ho jaye to ho jaye i am the way i am i can't i can't change my nature now so you know this podcast literally survives because of members members like you the current ones and the members who may become ones in the future so if you can please support this podcast whether on youtube or on patreon or on fanmo wherever you are a member and keep you know helping me in this endeavor to think out of the box talk about things that maybe are boring for some people but i still persist like you know recently you must have seen my podcast on the insolvency and bankruptcy code of all the things i was discussing a policy of 2016 because i read the book and i you know i loved that book and that's what i do as as a as a podcaster you know i became a podcaster accidentally i was just a guy who read a lot and then one day my wife told me tu mujhe bahut bolta hai tu jaake duniya se baat kar that's literally the starting point of this podcast you bore me go bore the world so now that you guys are there so deal with it but keep supporting the charvak podcast like subscribe leave a comment if you are an audio platforms just leave a rating there i will go on doing what i do and uh, i'll see you guys next time with another interesting discussion until then namaste take care bye bye